WUFTFM. This is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. So glad you could tune in today here on this Friday, July 7th. And happy to have back on the program our very good friend from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Richard Hill. And we're going to be talking today about something that, uh, well, I should, I should fair warn all of you who are having lunch right now. We're going to be talking today about what it means when your pet has diarrhea. How do you know whether there is a problem? And uh, Dr. Hill, who is an internal medicine and nutrition specialist, will discuss uh, what could be wrong And I hope you can stay tuned because Animal Airwaves Live is coming up after this news from NPR. WUFTFM. This is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Daniel. So glad to have you tuned in here on this Friday, July 7th, and really happy to welcome back to the program today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Richard Hill. And we're going to be talking today about something that may may give some of you some discomfort. So I just want a fair warning. We're going to be talking about defecation today and diarrhea and how important it is to kind of know whether or not our animals are experiencing genuine distress and may need help or whether there's something else that's not so worrisome. So let me welcome welcome you back to the program, Dr. Hill. I'm really glad to have you here. This uh, is... Um, it's always a pleasure to ha- to have you here. You've been on the program many times before. Thirteen, I think. Thir- or fourteen. Yeah. Thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. So uh, again, really good to see you now. Uh, when I think about our pets, one of the things that stands out to me, of course, is how well our pets they don't have the ability to communicate with us, you know, in words. They rely on us to kind of observe them. And one of the things that we can notice about them, of course, is whether their behavior changes. But physiologically, one thing that can really clue us into a problem is a change in urination or defecation. And it seems to me that those both can provide some insight into whether a pet is, you know, uh, its normal healthy self or if something is amiss. Well, I think one thing I want to convey is that people worry about it too much. Um, if you think of, and I hate to make the audience think about this, if you think of your own poop, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect it to be perfectly formed every time. You wouldn't expect it to be really hard because it might be a bit uncomfortable and you wouldn't expect it. And you wouldn't worry too much if you changed your diet recently if it was a little bit soft, you know. Um, or you had a little bit of flatulence or something like that. Um, the, the difference in pets is that we tend to feed them the same sort of stuff all the time. So we tend to look at their poop and have a certain expectation of what their poop should look like. Um, and there is a tendency to sort of say, well, it's not coming out as a, a, a bullet, then there's a problem. Well, my advice to the audience and people who have dogs and cats is that there is a wide range of what is normal. Um, as a, a graduate student, I was actually trying to assess the safety of giving uh, soy as a source of um, protein 
um, in dogs. And one of the things that comes with soy flour is some indigestible carbohydrate. And um, these dogs were all normal. And depending on how much we put of the soy carbohydrate in the diet, um, the, the poop could range from being uh, pretty well formed um, if it was uh, no soy in the diet to um, if we put too much in there, um, then it became semi-formed. So there was some formed and some was loose. And these dogs had totally were totally normal. This was not a problem for the dogs. Uh, so we shouldn't then infer that it felt uncomfortable to them inside, uh, you know, within certain parameters. Yes, and the pet food companies tend to make diets um, that make firm poop because they know that the public looks at this and expecting to see nice sausages coming out. But in reality, I guess as a guy who's interested in poop, I've looked at poop from uh, wolves and things like that out in the wild when I've been walking in the wilds, and it's sort of semi-formed in places, you know. Now, they've probably got parasites and other things going on there, but the fact remains is there is a range of normality, and the normal what the pet food companies are aiming for is probably a little firmer than is, is needed necessary. Um, yeah. Uh, you, I mean, you hit on something really I think so important and really one of the things that makes us very different from our own pets and that is that it's likely that you feed your animal the same thing every day. I mean that's how it is uh, with my cat Margaret Oliver. She eats the same thing every day and whether or not she wants anything different I don't know but that's what she gets and so I, I kind of operate with the belief that then everything else that kind of comes with that will be the same. But that might mean, too, that I would become concerned a little bit if somehow things were different. Wouldn't that indicate something had changed or something needs looking into? Uh, yes. And um, I think consistent change when you haven't changed the diet or your dog or cat hasn't been out um, maybe eating something that they shouldn't do, then that's something to pay attention to. Um, temporary changes in poop quality are not something to get too excited about. Um, and uh, people get worried about frequency. I, we, don't, we have a patient at the moment which is um, going from once a day pooping to t once every other day pooping. And again, I'll go back to those stud dogs I, we've had in various research studies. Some of them like to poop twice a day, some pets poop three times a day, some poop once a day, and some poop every other day, you know? And it depends a little bit on how much poop is coming down the pipe. Now, the dogs and cats have a much shorter colon than people, so they have a lesser, com com less, less component, um, uh, less space for it. Yeah. And as a consequence, if you feed once a day, um, we actually published a paper where it showed that if they pooped, um, some dogs on the whole, when they're pooping twice a day, um, they, they tend to poop softer poop in the afternoon if they're fed in the morning than in the morning. But, and that's probably just because the poop has been sitting there for a while and has had a chance to absorb all the water. Uh, let's maybe back up a little bit and talk about the components of the digestive system that come into play here. And I, I think many of us may understand it from, you know, living our own lives. 
Uh, but it, it could be worth reiterating how an animal's body may in some ways differ from our own. Well, there's a lot of similarities. Everybody thinks that mammals very are very different, but it's in, on the whole that the organization is more or less the same. The biggest difference is really but whether you're a herbivore or whether you're a carnivore or whether you're intermediate. Mm-hmm. And we're really intermediate. Dogs, are, cats are very much pure carnivores, and um, dogs are sort of intermediate between those two things. Um, there's a stomach in these simple stomached animals. Um, there's a stomach, and then you have an intest, a small intestine, and the stomach and the small intestine do most of the digestion. All right, and then um, you have a large bowel um, which stores what's left off. And because it sits for a while, then you get a fermentation and bacteria. And we now recognize that that fermentation is really important for health, that there is many bacteria, well, there's more bacterial cells than there are mammalian cells in all these animals, right? And that is just a fun fact to think about. Uh, And so this digestion is obviously a, a really big component, but it it relies on a certain amount of time. It takes a little bit of time for this to happen. Now, I don't know exactly how long that should be and whether that differs based on what the animal has eaten or what kind of animal it is. Um, You know, and maybe some people are different. I'll just tell everybody now, when I eat, I feel full for a long time. Like, dinner will arrive and I'm still pretty full from lunch. Then that's probably not the same case with you know, my cat who just wants to eat all the time, every minute? Um, not necessarily true. Um, uh, cats are designed to eat morning and evening. They're what's called crepuscular, ah. which basically means they're designed to catch things in the morning and the cat in the evening. And that sort of, if you have your own pet cats, that's sort of their lifestyle. Yeah, that makes sense. Sure. They, charge around in the morning and they charge around in the evening and they sleep most of the rest of the day. And what they do have to do is the average animal they're eating is about 30 calories, um, 20 or 30 calories. And um, they um, they have to eat about 200 to 300 calories a day. So they, they have to eat around 10 mice a day. So they have to catch five in the morning and five in the evening, you know, and so something like that. And depends on the size of the thing. If you're catching rabbits, maybe the baby rabbits, you don't have to eat quite so much. And if you're eating lizards, you have to eat rather more. But that what they do like to do is kill things. And so even when they're not hungry, they'll kill a lizard sort of thing. So that's part of their, their psyche, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And dogs, they, they can not eat for days. They're the longest time that dogs have been known not to eat is about 120 days, and they're still jumping in and out of the cage afterwards. That's astonishing. I mean, that's months. That's yeah. months. Uh, now, it's I guess evolutionarily it can be an advantage to to manage to hold off eating for that long. Um, you know, it may be there could be scarcity, and then it is to your advantage to be able to uh, go without eating for a long time. But I think that so many people would be alarmed if they didn't see their pet eating. That could be a sign of a problem. Absolutely. Most dogs and most cats want to eat once or twice a day. And, um, some certainly nibble all through the day and, and that sort of thing. So, um, there's, 
uh, what I would say is that a lot of dogs, that's part of their relationship with mum or dad, if you see what I mean. I and do. so um, they, that we, they train us. You know, I make a fuss and I, I get fed, so I'm going to make a fuss because I like to get fed. And most of this food is very digestible. But, and the problem is that we, obesity is one of the number one problems um, in dogs and cats at the moment. And uh, if your cat or dog is overweight, um, then it's probably going to live long, less, less long, and um, it's probably going to have more health problems as a consequence. So it's really important to keep dogs and cats lean if you can. Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean this is something we've t we've talked about before, and sort of the the signs of whether or not your animal has you know more or less the right amount of weight. For dogs, you've said before, there should be kind of a defined waist. Um, you should maybe be able to feel the ribs. Now, you don't want it to be bony, uh, but you want to be able to, like, when you're moving your hands along the the dog's body, be able to to feel the bones. If you if you just feel the soft tissue, maybe that dog needs to uh, eat a little eat a, eat a little bit less. So that's one of the main things that you can do to keep an eye on your dog is to is it gaining weight is it losing weight what's his body weight looking like and um to go back to our subject of diarrhea right um if there's really two types of diarrhea there's small intestinal diarrhea and large intestinal diarrhea um and we call them that because the large intestinal diarrhea reflects something going wrong in the large intestine, the colon, that storage organ that we talked about. And then if it's small intestinal diarrhea, we tend to think about the causes in the small intestine. Um, and um, the small intestine is where you're absorbing the, most of the calories. So if you're small, your dog has small intestinal diarrhea, um, uh, it tends to have a characteristic form. It's watery and it tends to be gassy and uh, the reason and it tends to be um, shall we say a little bit more voluminous and the reason is that the intest small intestine is not absorbing um, or not having time to absorb all the nutrients that it normally does um, and because it can't do that your dog or cat would tend to lose weight I see that yeah um, on the other hand if you're dog has large intestinal diarrhea, all right? What the large intestine is mostly doing is um, uh, it's, uh, though most of the water is absorbed in the small intestine, the large intestine is clean up, all right? Mm -hmm. And if things leave the intestine too fast, um, then you tend to get softer soft poop but it tends to be not so voluminous because there's less coming down the pipe if you see what i mean mm -hmm. because it's being digested but then the problem is in the large intestine so there's maybe some irritation or something like that so there tends to be straining uh, there can be mucus um, and um, there the, it can often be sort of half formed soft serve and mm -hmm. solid now i just told you that soft serve and solid might be just a reflection of normal function if it's consistent but if your dog is straining it's got mucus and that's unusual then there may be a problem in the large intestine that's causing that um, and so there's different that's one of the key things to look at right uh, you mentioned already that the consistent how if you're feeding the same food then is that a worry, all right? But 
I, if I eat a bunch of beans, all right, then I have some flatus and um, some soft poop, if you see what I mean, the next day. And the same thing would happen to a dog, all right, because it's basically not a, there's a lot of stuff coming down the pipe. I mean, it's getting fermented and you're getting flatus. But you don't, that would be, I would then interpret that due to, I just recently ate beans. But um, dogs, the same thing would apply. If it recently ate beans or something and it shouldn't have done, yeah. then that yeah. would uh, uh, and And of course, it's trickier with dogs because while maybe the most diligent of dog owners out there are feeding the same thing every day. What we know about dogs and people who have dogs is that there can be a temptation to allow our dogs to sort of enjoy some treats and people food from time to time. And I don't know if that's something that dogs get used to, you know, the way the way that some of us, like, I've gotten used to just eating garbage. Like, I just eat terrible all the time. But my body has just accepted that this is how it's going to be, and I get along okay. But if, you know, if we're giving a dog every once in a while, like, some steak that's maybe fatty, or like the fatty part of some, you know, cut of meat that we don't want and we're cooking in there uh, in the kitchen... I, I don't know. I mean, could that affect the animal's digestion and, and how it's feeling? Well, absolutely. It can. If you're going to use variety, then you need to be consistent um, <laughs> in your variety, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Because the intestine is expecting certain things coming down the pipe. And the problem is uh, a little bit here and there probably doesn't matter. But if it becomes at a consistent amount of the, what the dog is eating, then it's going to affect what, what the gut can adapt. Because it, the gut adapts, it changes so rapidly. If you, it can, the large intestine, if you eat uh, of a dog, if you eat, if it's eating a lot of fiber, it will expand and compensate to some degree. All right, but it takes a month for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, the, the large intestine, it's a fraction of the size of the small intestine, correct? Uh, it's it's wider uh-huh. but shorter. Shorter, okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, does the length matter uh, as much as the size, the like diameter? Um, all of those things matter. Uh-huh. All right. So in the small intestine, it's basically um, a thin, relatively thin tube, um, but it has a lot of. Um, indentations. Uh, they're called villi. They're like little fingers on the surface of the small intestine. And that those villi um, are the absorptive surface. So you have at the top in the stomach and, and pancreas are releasing enzymes, which are chemicals, which break up the food. Um, and then uh, the, after that food is broken up into its little constituent parts, it's then absorbed through these little villi. Well, those little villi have a turnover. The cells in those villi have a five to seven day turnover. So, um, they, and the number of villi and the, the length of the intestine, the width of the intestine, the size of the small intestine will vary depending on what you're eating. You know, I should have asked this. What is the, because uh, we, we know about what the, food looks like when it's on its way to the stomach. It's been chewed up and it's, you know, probably uh, got a a kind of mushy texture already. But once it leaves the stomach, about what is it like? Is it, uh, is it pretty liquidy? Is it, uh, I mean, when it makes it first, its first appearance there in the small intestine, it's already been 
somewhat probably uh, changed by the chemicals in the stomach. Well, there's a type of activity in the stomach of a dog which is th- that is called the fed pattern. And the outlet, called the pylorus, is closed when the stomach is full. Um, and it only lets out things which are smaller than about one, maybe two millimeters in. So really oh, tiny. Really tiny. All right? And the, the stomach is then pounding against this closed pylorus. And the only thing it's letting out pretty much is liquid or very small. And so the, now there's, after the stomach is sort of empty, um, it, uh, every 100 minutes there's a sort of housekeeper contraction which goes through the starts in the stomach and is a big sweeping contraction which works with an open pylorus and it's when the big items that got stuck so if you've got a bit of bone mm-hmm. that's stuck in the stomach because it's a little bit bigger and the stomach can't break it up then that's what moves that through and it will eventually move through until it's got to the large intestine so um Provided it's a digestible diet and it doesn't have lumps in it, you know, like a corn cob. Yeah. Sometimes corn cobs can get stuck and they we have to pull them out. But sometimes even corn cobs will empty and go gradually work their way through the down the intestine. But most of the most of the food gets turned into mush. Yeah. All right. So we have. Uh, we've we've learned a lot so far, uh, but there's still a lot more to go. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today is Dr. Richard Hill from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, and we'll be back with more of the show right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dane Hill. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill. And we are talking today about diarrhea and how that might indicate trouble for your pet, but maybe sometimes not. So, Dr. Hill, we left off, we'd, we'd discussed a bit of, of the anatomy and, and how it kind of functions in terms of helping our animals digest the food that they eat. And I wonder, you mentioned sort of right at the top of the program that diarrhea doesn't necessarily, uh, or at least a change in appearance of the stool doesn't necessarily mean that there is something severely wrong. But what should people do? I mean, you don't want people to just ignore it if it's, if it's present. Well, in fact, I was going to say that in cats, cats sometimes don't show diarrhea, even though they have a problem. Uh, old cats have a problem with what's called chronic enteropathy. Um, that's just a fancy word for saying the small intestine is not functioning properly. Um, and um, they tend to, they can have normal poop, but still lose weight. Um, and that doesn't mean to say that gut is functioning normally. Um, the reason they're losing weight could be because they have something wrong with them, but it could be because the intestine is not functioning properly as well. Um, and um, there are some old cats that eat a lot of food to compensate. 
from the fact that they're not their intestine's not working, even though their their poop is normal. So you can't totally. You have to look at the your 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 pet on a wholesome basis, and certainly um, if you're fairly familiar with the way the poop looks on a particular diet, then um, and it changes and it's consistently changed, then you should th think about going to see your veterinarian about that. But if you you are varying the diet, or um, the, the and sometimes the manufacturers change the diet, or you've changed the the bag of food, or something like that, and and then you get a slight change in what's going on, you should not get too anxious about that. Yeah. So let's let's propose this hypothetical scenario. You have changed your pet's diet, whether dog or cat, from a dry kibble to a canned food. Would you expect to see a change in the animals? Well, to understand this, we need to talk about different types of major nutrients that are present in the diet. Um, there is protein, um, which is what gets turned into muscle and is really important for function. And that's mostly fairly well digested. Um, source that most of the things that are in commercial diets are fairly well digested. Um, th th you have fat, and dogs and cats are really, really, really good at digesting fat. All right? And so um, then you have carbohydrate, and that comes in forms which vary from being very digestible to not digestible at all. Um, so that with the carbohydrate, for example, everybody gets excited about grain. Um, the reality is that the starch in grain is very digestible. But the, there are bits in grains which are not so digestible. Um, that's fiber. And it comes in stuff which is fairly fermentable um, and stuff that's not fermentable. Um, and so if you're canned diets tend to be higher in protein, higher in fat, less carbohydrate. So they tend to make firmer poop mm -hmm. um, because they're very digested. They're very well digested. Um, uh, dry diets by mostly have more carbohydrate in them. And um, they, so it really depends on the digestibility of the carbohydrate bit in the dry diets as to whether they would change the content of the diet. Now, if what I say, if you're going from a, uh, a less digestible to a digestible diet, you should see normal poop, standard poop. It may be a bit firmer, all right, fairly quickly, all right, in three or four days. But if you go from a diet which is designed to have more fiber to feed those bacteria in the large bowel, which we now realize are really important to health, all right. Uh, if you're going to a high-fiber diet, it may be a month before your poop settles down. So I, I'm learning something today that I am kind of ashamed that I didn't ever think about before. And just to help me if I maybe heard you wrong, uh, I would have always assumed that the higher moisture content in a canned diet would have some effect on the animal's digestion and the feces. Uh, and it sounds like kind of the inverse is the case because it has more to do with the protein relative to the carbohydrate. Well, yes, it, because the gut is normally very good at absorbing water. You know, that, that, that's the key feature. And um, the large intestine of, of 
uh, cats particularly is very good and dogs are very good at absorbing water. Um, in fact, um, when we've measured the, con the, the volatile fatty acids in the, in the colon of cats and dogs, um, the, the concentration is really high, but they're not making very much of those things because they have relatively little coming down the pipe. All right, and the reason it's the concentration is high is because the water is being absorbed. All right, they're very good at absorbing water. They, you know, cats, they're they're designed to absorb water. You mentioned that in the large intestine there is a good deal of bacteria. What a lot of us might call good bacteria, right? That do play an important role in digestion and the overall health of animals and probably people too. You say that it's now understood. What did, what did people think uh, before? I mean, how, how uh, before we kind of knew what was going on in there? Um, well, it's, it's even when I was a graduate student 30 years ago, um, we had an idea that there was an important role to play, but we have more tools to be able to study this, and we've become... We now realize, uh, because of some very clever studies, that in fact um, the bacteria are running some of the systems in our body. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, how would we expect to see a change then in the animal's feces if the animal was taking, say, some sort of antibiotic or something else that might affect the bacteria in the intestines? Absolutely, and that's why we've learned to be a little bit more circumspect about giving antibiotics and are aware that sometimes we can make things worse in the, um, in the animal's health by doing that. So the classic example is giving an antibiotic called metronidazole, um, and it's a really important um, antibiotic which works against specific bacteria and is uh, useful and it was it's widely used for large intestinal diarrhea because of the worry that it might be a bacteria that's causing the problem but what we've learnt with the tools that we have now that it you actually really majorly affect the large intestinal bacteria and it can be a month or more before the bacteria get back to normal and sometimes they don't get back to normal and they let in other things which are maybe not so good and you we even have to sometimes do fecal transplants to try and replace the the flora to try and make it better right oh okay i want to propose a hypothetical situation here to you. Uh, imagine I, I'm somebody, I've come in, and I have noticed some kind of change in my dog. Maybe the dog had diarrhea. Maybe the dog, you know, couldn't make it out of the house or something like that, in which case I would definitely notice that there was a, a, a thing that, was, uh, that required some attention. I've come to you, and you're going to probably ask me some important questions. Can you tell me what some of those questions might be? Absolutely. Well, the the first one is uh, first ones are related to what the nature of the poop is looking like. So, what was it like before the the dog or cat got sick, and what does it look like now? And the sort of things we're going to ask are: Is the quantity more than usual? 
is the frequency more than usual? Um, is it what's the character of it? And maybe a photograph or two. I've actually had people send me oodles of photographs, huh. and it maybe gets a little too much if you see what I mean. Yeah, I do but, see what you mean. But um, it uh, it's, it uh, it does help. All right. Um, and um, is there straining? Um, uh, is there mucus? Is there fresh blood? Um, because that's going to come from the large intestine. Or is it black poop, like black as your, the chairs in this yeah. room sort of thing, um, charcoal black? Um, then that's, that can be due to blood from higher up the intestine that is causing it. So we're going to ask stuff about the character of what's going on with the poop. We're also going to ask need you to bring information about body weight and previous blood work that you might have. Right, and we would potentially run blood tests on what's on the samples uh, on the blood that you have now. Um, we would. Um, there are some specific tests that we can run that look at the um, absorptive capacity of the intestine, uh, particularly uh, vitamin B12, which is absorbed in the ileum. It's, that's the last bit of the small intestine. Um, and if that is affected, that's commonly affected if you have something going on in the small intestine. And so then we can look at that and try and decide what's going on. And if, if there's, uh, there's a test for pancreatic enzymes to see you're making enough of those and things like that. So there's some tests we can do. But the thing that really helps me as a nutritionist and an internist is you bring me detailed information about what's been happening about the diet up to now. Um, and if necessary, go back to all the way back to when the, your, your dog or cat was last normal. All right, and so what were you feeding then? What are you feeding now? Because everybody, when they see something going wrong, they blame it on the diet, and they yeah. change the diet. Yeah. All right, and then as we talked about, it might be a month before that the intestine could adapt to that new diet, and so they say, "Oh, it's not got got any better." So I'm going to change it to a new one. Oh. And then I'm going to change it to a new one, and so. Yeah. We need to know about all those things and yeah. not just because you've already recognized the fact that people give treats. I give treats to my cat, mm -hmm. but I, I know that to give tiny, tiny bits, yeah. right? Less than 10% of the diet is yeah. coming from that, yeah. right? Um, but the reality is a lot of people give milk bones and things like that, which provide a lot of calories, all mm -hmm. right? And so you need to come with a list of everything that's going into the animal's mouth. And ideally a diary or something yeah. that tells us what's going on. I mean, you, you just said something that I think is very, very relatable. So uh, if, if I'm kind of understanding you, you, for whatever reason, maybe choose to change your pet's diet. I mean, maybe you change the brand of food. Maybe, as you say, the pet food manufacturer changed something about it. And then you notice there's some sort of change to to your to your animal, right? It, it's maybe it, it gets some stomach upset. Maybe there's some diarrhea, and so uh, you're like, oh, oh, well, you know, I guess I need to change the diet again. And then so you change the diet again, and this just kind of exacerbates the problem. And it takes, as you say, a while for the animal's body to kind of get used to a change in diet. This is why I think before on the program you've emphasized 
that changes in diet might be better if they're gradual. Oh, absolutely. But even if they, like I said, if you're going to a digestible diet, even if you're going to a digestible diet, you should still change it over three or four days. Sort of give a quarter of one, quarter of the new diet, three quarters of the old diet, then go to half and half, then quarter, three mm -hmm. quarters, then go to the change. All right. If you're going to a, you should still do the same thing if you're going to a diet which has extra fiber in it. Um, but you should probably give it a longer time before you decide that the diet is a problem, right? Because it may take a month for the large those bacteria in the large intestine, for the large intestine to adjust to the size and all that sort of thing. It really does take a month for the, the large intestine to adapt. Now, let us say that there haven't been any substantial changes to an animal's diet. Could... could a cause of diarrhea be some sort of bacteria or virus? Well, that's a, that's a really important point because I was going to say the tendency is to blame the diet, and most of the time it is not the diet. Oh, All okay, right? yeah. And so that's why you need to go and see a veterinarian. You should first go and see your local vet and um, they can maybe help you with that decision-making process. And if you can bring, for example, pick photos of the food you're feeding and things like that, that helps, all right? But um, the first step is to, to um, go and talk, see your veterinarian if you've got a consistent abnormality that you're worried about. Um, then the next step would be, um, so, um, the veterinarian would then run some tests to try and sort out whether there is something major going on. And they might suggest a modest change in diet based on what you're currently feeding to see whether, because it's a lot cheaper to just change the diet to a digestible diet, shall we say, or one that is designed to um, try and help patient, most patients with GI disease, all right? Um, but... Um, the, and there are different types of diet trial that they can try. And it, it's, it's, it may be appropriate to change the diet under those circumstances, but they will do some testing to, to make sure that you don't have underlying diseases. If your dog has caught parvovirus, for example, diet is not the immediate thing you need to worry about. It's keeping your dog alive. All right, and that's due to a virus which has damaged all those crypts. It's literally wiped out all the cells on the surface of the crypts. The crypts are gone. The, the villi, those little yeah. fingers in the intestine, they are gone. And they're going to be gone for seven days, five yeah. to seven days, till yeah. they grow back again. And so you've got to keep your dog alive, and we will give food during that period to try and encourage the, the villi to grow back. Yeah. But um, you, that's a problem if you've got you know if you've got a an infection in the salmonella you've been giving some raw food you've got salmonella and then and there's a consequence you're getting a problem because of that or campylobacter or something like that then um you need to treat that all right for large intestinal diarrhea the commonest one of the common causes of large intestinal diarrhea in florida are worms so whipworms. And so if you're not treating for whipworms, you need to treat for whipworms. Um, uh, so there are some things which you can do to try and treat for those things. And by and large, the veterinarian would treat for the common things or they would help you try and make that decision and necessarily treat for that. 
Um, if those initial treatments don't work, then the next step would be, and you, you've done some testing and you've not got anywhere or you've got some changes, then you would potentially undertake a diet trial with a specific diet. Can we talk about that on the other side of this break? Because sure. uh, we need to take one more break, but I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill. We're going to be back with more of the show right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Richard Hill. And when we left off, uh, Dr. Hill, I had just stopped you before you were about to go uh, in into something. And uh, if, if if you would, uh, continue. Okay. Well, I was going to say that there are different types of diet trial. Um, and people get very uh, excited about changing the protein source. And undoubtedly, there are a number of animals that have an immune reaction to some things in their diet. Um, I think we're all familiar with gluten enteropathy um, in people. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's a very, very rare thing that occurs in dogs. So mostly you should not be worried about gluten. But again, there's some uh, new work which maybe indicate that maybe there's we got tools which maybe indicate that it's a problem in some dogs. But that's mostly been recognized in Britain, not in America to date. Um, the, uh, having said that, one of the diet trials your veterinarian may suggest is a, to use a diet that is made out of very few proteins, um, and that the, the ideally proteins that have never been your dog has ne or cat has never seen before, um, and that's why it's important to know all the other things that the dog or cat has been exposed to previously, so that we can try and find a diet a protein source that they've not been exposed to. Um, and that one of the ways to make sure they haven't seen it is to hydrolyze the protein that breaks it up into its much smaller bits, which the body hasn't recognized those little bits before. All right, It's got rid of all the big bits that they could recognize, so it makes the little bits that they can't recognize. But So there's, that's a common suggestion, a novel protein diet or a hydrolyzed protein diet. But just lowering the fat content may be important, may help. Just increasing the fat content may help, all right? Or just changing the diet to a diet which we generally recognize is, doesn't cause diarrhea, all right? Yeah. And uh, there's a study where 70% of the cats, whether they had a high-fat or a low-fat diet, they got better if they just changed the diet. Yeah. Um, so, um, but you have to give it time to work. That's what I was saying. You can't keep popping and change, chopping and changing. So there are different types of diet trials that you can try. After that, then you may have to do some surgery to, to, to take samples or do endoscopy to try and take a sample to see what's going on and make sure there's no cancer or something else that you yeah. need to be worried about. Yeah. Um, that's all really good. That's all really uh really good advice. And, and ultimately, what it comes down to is that there are options. I mean, veterinarians can be very helpful in this regard, uh, even if it requires ultimately seeing a specialist. Uh, one other topic we haven't hit on in this program, but is worth mentioning, because it can be sometimes as vexing as diarrhea, and that is constipation. Yes, well, um, it's relatively unusual 
Um, but um, the cats are well recognized. Some cats develop an inability to poop. Um, and the solution to that is to give them more fiber. Um, and so you can add, when if you have an animal, whether it's a cat or a dog, which is making too firm a poop, then adding soluble fiber, and the simplest thing to add is Metamucil. Mm. Um, and you, that's a soluble fiber that is fermented in the large intestine. So it goes all the way down, gets fermented, and it overwhelms the, the large intestine's ability to absorb the volatile fatty acids and water. So you get more water coming out the poop as a consequence. So that, that helps to loosen up the poop. Um, you can also use Merrillax or something like that that basically holds water in the large intestine, helps things move through. And so that's fairly straightforward to do. But um, in dogs, the, one of the common causes of, of constipation is actually bones. Ah. And so if you give too many bones, I know some people give a lot of chicken necks and things like that. You know, this an inexpensive source of stuff, but that, those bones can cause constipation if you give too much of them. Yeah, I mean, is it is it kind of the the texture of the bone, or is it uh, really just what the bones are made out of? It's. I think it's a bit of both. Mm. It's the calcium. The calcium dries up the poop. Uh, um, the, you know, magnesium um, actually makes it wetter. Um, so um, if we're all familiar with Epsom salts. If you eat too much Epsom salts, and it's one of the things they give you to clean out your poop when you're, they want to scope you. So yeah. um, that magnesium tends to make the poop looser and calcium tends to make it a bit drier. Well, I mean, so if for for those animals, then there's, there's an option. And it sounds to me like those options can be pretty affordable. That wouldn't seem like a especially expensive uh, kind of uh, treatment, whether because I mean, you know it's well understood how to kind of combat, I guess, constipation. Uh, but could it it could be related to diet or, or less frequently so? Um, again, I would remind you that the pet food companies like to make firm poop. Yeah, and so your def it depends a little on your definition of constipation. If if your pup is struggling to push the poop out, that's constipation. All right. Right. Just to have hard poop is not constipation. Okay. All right. Um, having too much poop accumulate in the intest in the large intestine, that's that's a problem. All right. But hard poop alone is not a problem. Yeah. Well, so in the little bit of time that we have left, I, I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, your veterinarian is going to be a really good resource if something is truly amiss. And, and you had mentioned earlier some of the some of the things that could be concerning. Um, but there are treatment options available. And don't go doing anything rash. Uh, don't go just suddenly changing your pet's food just for the sake of change. And if you have recently changed the food and things are, you know, starting off kind of rough, don't immediately rush to change it again to something else. Because most of the time it is not the diet. It's, it's certainly changing the diet can cause a problem. Um, one thing we've mentioned, I think, in the past is that um, 
Oh, I've lost my thread. I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> it's okay. Well, here's the good news, Dr. Hill. I'm sure that we will have you back on this program in the future because it is always really good having you here. Uh, Dr. Richard Hill is from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, where I also want to thank Sarah Carey and Amanda Buckley for their help with the program. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in today to Animal Airwaves. I hope you join me next time. <laughs>